0: Welcome to Finding The Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today, and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To so get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Badfield.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to episode six of Finding the Front, our first episode of 2022. Happy New Year to all. Our special guest today is a timely one, with Western Australia experiencing a truly bumper grain harvest. With the headlines shouting out that Western Australian grain cooperative CBH has reached a record breaking result of over 20 million tonnes for this year's harvest across WA, it seems like no better time to chat to the recently appointed CEO of the CBH Group, Ben McNamara. For those of you who aren't familiar with the CBH Group, it was established back in 1933 and it is owned and controlled by some 3,700 Western Australian grain growing businesses from right across this great state. CBH is Australia's largest cooperative, biggest grain exporter, and one of the country's largest agribusinesses, with operations extending along the value chain, from fertilizer, to storage and handling, logistics, marketing and trading, and processing. I've known Ben for quite some time, but to have an opportunity to gain an insight into his career and life that has landed him to this point is a real privilege. So, without a moment more, it gives me a really great pleasure to introduce the CEO of CBH Group and all round great bloke, Ben McNamara. <laughs> Benny, so great to have you on Finding the Front. Good to be here, ben. Uh Look, you know, particularly in light of your current role and your recent appointment to CEO of CBH, and that WA is experiencing its record harvest. Thanks for taking the time out. We really do appreciate it because uh, I know you are extremely
2: busy. Yeah, really appreciate it and um, great to have the opportunity to, to talk to your uh, podcast listeners.
1: Well, look, being from a farming family myself um, and having known you and your family for a long time, I've been really looking forward to catching up because there's a lot going on in your world and uh, you've had a, a phenomenal rise and, and now being CEO of this just extraordinary group, CBH. We're, we're really looking forward to drilling down a little bit and understanding a little bit about the pathway to where you got to this point. And I suppose it all starts when we look back at Williams. You grew up in Williams, and, and I know you've got a farming heritage, and it's, it goes back some time, and I know that it goes right back when we talk about your father, Colin, and your mum, Flicky, um, and their parents. And, you know, that goes back to a generational farming Heritage. So, just how was it growing up in Williams within that environment, and and being one of four boys?
2: Yeah. So, um, Williams is a couple of hours from Perth um, on the Albany Highway. Grew up with three brothers. I'm a twin. And maybe if we go back to uh, to sort of mum and dad and and also their parents, I think agriculture is deeply ingrained in who I am and in our family. So, I look on both sides. My mum was a fowler. And they've got a very proud agricultural history, Aubrey and, uh, and Tom and, and their uh, offspring have spread throughout the state. My grandmother was a heim. They're also uh, in farming throughout Western Australia. And then on, on dad's side, uh, his father was English, moved out to Australia when he was 18. But uh, my grandmother on my father's side, their surname was male. They were pastoralists, but also um, deeply ingrained in the in the peeling industry up in Broome right. as well. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly been with us for a long time.
1: And so is that farming community still sort of ingrained in the McNamara? You know, when you look at your brothers now, we've got Sam in Pingerley and John's still running the farm down in Williams.
2: Yeah, that's correct. So John's uh, basically farming where, where I grew up in Williams and uh, has done a sensational job in, in growing his business and, and growing the size and scale of that, of, uh, that farming enterprise. Sam is on a, on a different farm out in Pingerley, but also done the same. Extremely proud of how they've both gone about it over the last sort of uh, 20 years since they've, they've both been farming.
1: And Tim's involved, that's your older brother, Tim's involved in sort of business interests?
2: Tim's involved in various business interests, but he, was, he also spent time in agriculture, worked for Wellard um, and their corporate farming venture as well, 10 or so years ago. So from my role today, it's, it's been really valuable having, having all of them involved in farming in different ways and um, they're always good to provide um, some solid, solid feedback, uh, robust and quite often pretty timely.
1: <laughs> Tell me, growing up, I know your, your parents have sadly passed, but you know Colin was a, an avid sportsman. Uh, he loved his sport and your, your mum was a loving, loving mother to the four boys. It would have been, I know growing up with uh, a brother and a sister, it was, it was quite competitive. I could imagine being part of four boys would have been extremely competitive.
2: Oh, I think uh, it certainly had its moments. There was a lot of backyard cricket and footy games on the tennis court and things like that. I think uh, we probably were all very competitive, but also that sort of brought each of us on in a good kind of way as well. So made each of us better, I think.
1: Was sport a big role in growing up at Williams?
2: Sport is a massive part of uh, the DNA in Williams, I think. I think as a small town of just over a thousand people, sort of bats above its average, really, across all different sporting uh, codes, whether that be hockey, netball, or, or footy, and, uh, and also cricket. And as you said, Dad was intimately involved in, uh, in certainly the cricket scene and was a uh, junior cricket, cricket coach and coached all of us all the way through. And I think he was. He was still even coaching once we'd all gone away to boarding school.
1: So your primary schooling was at Williams? Yep. Yeah, you enjoyed that?
2: Yeah, so Williams is a, is a smaller school. It's got 120 or 130-odd kids. And, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was um, formative, as you, as you sort of say. It was Williams has got a, quite a competitive footprint to it, but good schooling as well and set us up for success when, when I went, ultimately went away to boarding school.
1: So you went away to boarding school with that community of Williams behind you, you know you've clearly had a great upbringing with being on the farm, playing in the local cricket and footy teams, and and, uh, and being a part of a lot of people's lives, and particularly a strong family connection. You went to boarding school at the age of twelve, boarded for five years at Scotch yep, College. Yep, correct. How did you find it?
2: I think boarding school was um, is a really valuable part of my history about my experience, I think it teaches you around independence and certainly it builds your resilience all the way through. You don't have mum and dad over your shoulder, you know, pestering you to do homework or, or making sure you're doing chores and I think that does make you grow up really quickly. You know, I was fortunate enough to have my twin brother Sam uh, join me at boarding school so that sort of is really helpful. But I think if I look at the other kids that I went through Scotch with, you know, there's still some of my best mates today and a lot of those guys are still farming throughout regional Western Australia and I spend a lot of time talking with them and, and understanding some of their challenges and some of the opportunities that they have. So I think an extremely valuable piece of my formative years but also really valuable in my role today.
1: Thanks for sharing that. When you left school, did you have an idea on what you wanted to do or did you, was it an ambition to go back on the land at any stage? Did you have that opportunity?
2: So I think as I went through school, I think you know sport was such an important part of it. I love my cricket and love my footy particularly. I possibly thought once uh, school had finished that I needed to stay in Perth to follow a fostering football career. What did I want to do? I think mum and dad were really clear with us that the farm was always there if we wanted to come back to it. And they were really open, honest, and we talked a lot about succession even from those early years. I think uh, Tim had already moved to Sydney and was an accountant uh, with a firm over there and I think uh, at that point in time I wanted to make sure that I kept my options as open as possible and I followed a, a Bachelor of Business at ECU and, and that seemed to keep as many options open as possible. I went from, uh, from a boarding environment where you've got housemasters making sure you're doing the right things, to living in a share house in Mosman Park with a bunch of mates and I think that's another really important step in my journey in terms of you've now got this freedom, but how do you make sure you've got the self discipline to, uh, to follow through? At that point in time, uh, mum and dad were, were really clear that, you know, once you, once you leave school, you're very much on your own. So we're expecting you to fund yourself. Now, they obviously <laughs> sat in behind us, but that meant not only was, were we renting a house, we're also making sure we had jobs to support ourselves and also, you know, going through uni and following that sporting career as well.
1: Just on your sporting, I know uh, football has been a huge part of your life. Did you have, think, oh, I've, I've got ambitions, I know you went down to South Fremantle to have a go, South Fremantle Football Club, how did it go? Did you
2: give it yourself a fair shake? So I went and played country footy actually, first year out of school, and I went and played with Williams, and I really enjoyed that. And I played, uh, we actually won the premiership in 1997 in Upgrade Southern, which was um, a fantastic thing. And I think some of the guys that we played with in that team really, really shaped um, me as a footballer. Immediately following that, I went up and played with South Fremantle for a couple of years, managed to pick up a number of injuries. But I really enjoyed the time at South and learned a lot of lessons and, and a different um, take on professionalism, which I probably wasn't exposed to until that point in time. And I look back, I, I created a lot of friendships with a lot of people at South and and those would continue to foster in Sydney as well.
1: It's a great way to understand what a team means when you're playing team sport like football. From my observations of you, team has become a big part of your life throughout your working career, but also your, your friendships. Was football really formative in sort of some of the influences you you had yeah I know you mentioned that it ta- South's taught you a little bit about football but the professionalism of it but
2: you know friendships yeah I, th- I mean friendships yes but I think even in my in my role today I take a lot of lessons in the football teams that I was involved in you know was setting goals and aspirations at the beginning of the year setting team rules and then you know uh, leadership roles in football teams as well I guess Getting the team to pull in the one direction is really important. I use lots of examples in, uh, when I'm talking to people around how it's important to have a balanced team. Uh, you can't have a whole team of centre-forwards. You've got to make sure that you've got to balance the, the bench players are just as important as your centre-forward. You've got to have back pockets, which will stay on their man. And when things aren't going right, you need to make sure that people continue to play their position. And you don't want everyone suddenly running into the midfield to solve those problems. So it's really important to have role clarity and, and have those structures and, and have that, I guess, strategy or, or game plan to take you forward. So, and I think then on top of that is, is the teamwork and the camaraderie and the, the chemistry between the team, how that works through. I think all of those aspects are really important from a football perspective, but they're just as important from a business perspective as well.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So, Ben, you, you completed your university degree and in keeping with keeping your options open, chose to go down the path of PwC. Now, this is clearly not an agricultural-aligned choice, but what did you see there as an opportunity? Because you ended up spending some 10 years of your life at PwC, which is a big chunk of your career. And I'd just like to explore, what did you get out of this PwC role that really has held you in good stead?
2: Yeah, a lot, but maybe, maybe I'll step back. How did I get to PwC yeah. in the first place? So I did Bachelor of Business. I was lucky enough to uh, get some vacation work with KPMG here in Perth. I worked in their audit part of the business, and that really helped me to understand why I was studying some of the things I was doing at uni. I then uh, was lucky enough with, uh, with my brother, Tim, who was living in Sydney at the time. Uh, he was working in the dot-com industry and said, why don't you come over and do some work for me during, uh, during a summer period? I took him up on that offer and worked. You know, Tim, Tim made sure he got his pound of flesh out of it. <laughs> but it was a really important piece. I pre- uh, helped him prepare for, a, for an annual audit. It was a listed business. And I think this is where that sporting background, that ability to generate relationships became really important. PwC we were actually their auditors at that point in time and, and created a relationship with that team and understood what they were after. I then decided, having returned to Perth, that you know working for one of these uh, big, at that stage, five uh, accounting firms was something that I wanted to do. And I really set myself a goal of, of going after that. And I also wanted to go and work in Sydney at that uh, point in time. and so. Applied for all of the different accounting firms and uh, was lucky enough to pick up an offer from, from most of them, all of them. And then it was an important piece for me of who I chose. I was moving to a new city and I wanted to make sure that I was aligned to the culture. And I asked them, I think if I look back, strange questions I used to say to the partner can I, who was interviewing me, can I, uh, can I do a walk around the floor? I think they looked at me a little, a little oddly, but they were like, yeah, you can do that. And, and I remember sitting back sort of unpacking who I wanted to go and work for. And PwC was the one I chose because I felt most aligned to their culture. And uh, that turned out to be a fantastic decision because I went and worked in their audit practice in Sydney. I was looking at uh, businesses in the dot-com sort of phase in the, uh, yes. in the early 2000s. So businesses in technology, information, communication, entertainment, which was a different area for someone who'd uh, come off, off the land. But it's... Um, it was a really formative uh, period in my life and I spent three years in their audit practice. I guess that's where my, my sort of journey started. And again, it comes back to the ability to, to generate relationships with different people. And I do believe that my country upbringing, whether that was helping in the shearing shed when I was a kid or, or playing in sporting teams, uh, helps me to develop those relationships and I identified the transaction services, which was due diligence or working in, uh, in mergers and acquisitions was an area that, that I wanted to be involved in and built the relationships with the team that looked after that, got myself a short-term secondment. Then you demonstrate your skills and capability and, and ultimately the, the team said, would you like to stay in the team? And that was, uh, that was my commencement into a mergers and acquisitions role.
1: When you look at the role within PwC that took you to Sydney and also took you to London, how did you find coming from you know an upbringing in Western Australia to to those larger cities, particularly when you got to
2: London? Yeah, I think you know I was lucky enough with my time with PwC to to work in all sorts of places around the world. So whether that be Singapore or New York, I spent six months working out of New York as well. And I think for a start, it becomes Quite daunting for a uh, for a shy country boy from Williams to go and work in a place like that, but I think you got to sort of trust in the process and trust in your capability. And what I learnt is that we can compete uh, against people like that and other parts of the world. And you know you're very comparable, and the skills that you learn, those practical skills, are extremely valuable anywhere.
1: If you move on and you look at the background in terms of your PwC upbringing for ten years. What would you say the main strengths that came out of that are? When you look at your current role, you know, understanding not only people, not only having to sink or swim in a large city environment, in a large organisation, but what, what were the main drivers that you could say, well, without that upbringing, I probably would be short of a few things?
2: Yeah, I think it was instrumental. So I look at PwC as basically providing me with a foundation. So if I start with, with the accounting side, so you know, really understanding debits and credits, understanding how businesses work, when you start, as a, start out as an auditor, you're reconciling cash and at the end of the day, cash is king. So it really taught me uh, the basics of, of finance. I think then it's, then it's the attention to detail, you know, uh, making sure you know, around accuracy, a key thing around all of my roles has been really accuracy around reporting. And then it's really around businesses. So I've looked at hundreds of different businesses at different stages of their life cycle, whether they're a startup, whether they're a Rio Tinto, whether they're Macquarie Banks, different funds that, that I used to order it as well. And then the due diligence side, really starting to understand the value drivers of the business, what creates the value. I think then it's, then it's about, how to lead a team. So you you go into one of these accounting firms, you're sort of 2021 and uh, a year or two later, you're actually leading uh, teams and leading engagements. And so, you know, whether that's three people or a dozen or or 20, I think those leadership experiences are are really valuable. And you you get the opportunity multiple times a year to pick up a team and motivate it and align it and take that team in, in the direction that you want to want to take it. So there's a lot of trial and error. You, you do get to make some mistakes along the way because it's project orientated. So it's a, you're looking at a, a month period or it might be as long as three months. So you get lots of opportunity. I think the other one is around building relationships and you hear that's a really important piece to me. Um, so building relationships, whether it be with your client or other advisors that are working alongside you on on transactions as well. So PwC was a really formative uh, part of my career, and I, I look back on it really fondly. During those years at PwC,
1: if we just move slightly off topic of business, you met your lovely wife Hillary on the east coast. So that 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 occurred in Sydney.
2: Yep, Hill and I met at Cargo Bar of all places in uh, in Sydney. Hill was uh, from Brisbane. And she happened to be in Sydney that weekend with a bunch of mates. And one of her friends at the time was going out with one of, the, one of my colleagues who was a good mate and still is a good mate of mine. And so we met on a Friday night at Cargo Bar and that was when I was 23. And, and what, we're sort of 17 or 18 years later and, and three kids.
1: And your kids now, Well, it's a great story. Your kids, you've got Harry, Georgie and Lachlan.
2: That's right. Yep. Yeah. Ten is Harry, and uh, and then Georgie's eight, and and Lockie's five. Fantastic kids, but you learn a lot through your kids as well. I uh, I think I've learned more about myself through my kids. I think in the last you know ten years, than possibly what I did before.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Family to you, I I know is very important. How have you been able to balance that, you know, with your current requirements and demands? And look, we can get further into your role as CEO further down the track, but just have you been able to find that sweet spot that, that, or that balance?
2: I think it's always a challenge when you're in, in a role like mine, but uh, you've always got to make time, and I think it's around those prioritising it and making sure you're really well planned. Um, I can certainly get better at that, but I'm really lucky to have Hill who is very understanding and also you know, her background... As an MLA lawyer as well, is really valuable, and she's a fantastic sounding board for me. I think for us to make it work over the last few years has meant that that Hills come out of the workforce. Um, that's a, a short term thing for us to to manage through this through this time. But Hill's been a fantastic sounding board for me throughout my career, and uh, never so more uh, than at the current point in time.
1: Thanks for sharing with us with that, Benny. I just think when we think about life and how it progresses forward, you have to make changes, you have to make decisions. You ended up having to make pretty significant change when you decided to, to go to Gresham, Gresham Advisory. Talk us through why you did that. Was that it's clearly stemming back to that mergers and acquisitions role within PwC where you got to know that part of the business well?
2: Yeah, so... I spent ten years with PwC. I, as I said, I worked in places like New York and Singapore, but I spent two and a half, nearly three years, working in London as well. And the back end of that coincided with the GFC, as you mentioned. Mum had also passed away, so wanted to come back to Perth and spend a bit, bit more time with uh, with my family and 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 Dad, having lived away for over ten years. And then you know I'd, I'd always been having worked in a in the PwC transaction services team, I'd straddled into corporate finance and I'd always wanted to uh, get a broader, I guess, exposure across a transaction and hence the reason the, uh, the opportunity came up at Gresham. And so transaction services, really looking at the financial side, uh, when you work into Gresham investment banking role, it broadens you out. So it includes the legal, the commercials, the negotiation aspects, the valuation piece as well. And so, um, you know, I could have stayed within PwC, I, I, I think, and, and continue to grow through, and I guess I would have targeted a, a partnership role there. I had a, probably a different aspiration, and that was ultimately to go into an in-house role, as I eventually did with CBH. But to get there, I felt that, you know, broadening my expo- experience out to include investment banking or, and that strategic element was a really important component. And so I applied for a role at at Gresham and I actually took a step back both in salary and also in a level of seniority as well. And I think if I look back on that choice, it's a really, really valuable one in terms of where I've got to today because it gave me a, a different exposure to different businesses and broadened my understanding of different businesses. We also did a lot of strategic work uh, in that role, which has held me in good stead in, in my current role.
1: When you talk about what the experiences you gained were, how many businesses do you think you looked at through M&A and corporate transactions, corporate advisory, through your role with Gresham? Because it's a, I mean, it was a very highly regarded organisation.
2: Yeah, and, and it still is. So I think um, oh, it would be in the hundreds. I think uh, I actually try to quantify this for myself as part of the process that I recently went through. But you know, I'd have to have looked at well over 200 businesses, and, and in my experience in a consulting environment, I think that experience has held me in really good stead to see, you know, what can and doesn't work, and, and what good looks like.
1: Well, it's a really great
2: basis for
1: understanding the roadmap of a business, and I I say that in light of you can. Look at the cost structure of business. You can look for efficiencies. You can look at ways of improving the business by different levers. Take that role with Gresham, and all of a sudden, you've got an opportunity to move to C B H. You're like starting to. You've got quite a number of years of experience now, and you and you decide to move. I'm really intrigued. You've got a growth path. You've just given up one with PwC. You've got another one with Gresham. You've thought, no, I'm now I can see an opportunity to move back into my agricultural upbringing or my passion. What what, what
2: made you move? I think it goes back to that sort of strategic roadmap that I created for my own career uh, very early on, which was ultimately to go into an in-house BD type role and building out the skill set to have to be able to enable that or to make myself appealing to, uh, to a potential recruiter or business to, to bring me on board. And so that was part of the, the Gresham journey. All the way through, both at PwC and at Gresham, whenever there was an ag deal to be done, I was always always had my hand up saying, um, I, I want to be on that. Because right. that ag piece uh, has always, I guess, been part of my DNA, as I sort of alluded to earlier in, in the discussion. So... When I became aware that there was an opportunity at CBH, I started making some inquiries and I put my hat in the ring to be able to go and explore that opportunity and I felt there was a really good mix of, of my upbringing but also my corporate experience as well. Luckily enough at the time, um, CBH agreed with that as well. I think at that point in time, I, I had aspirations to, to work in the BD team and, and at that point in time, CBH had a number of investments uh, which I found interesting.
1: So that move into CBH was fairly seamless
2: in the end? Yeah, so I joined in August uh, 2014 and I went into a role which was literally just the, well, not just, but it was the business development manager. I didn't have any direct reports and we had a portfolio of a number of, uh, of investments that I was to look after, principally Interflower, which uh, CBH has a 50% interest in and Interflower is uh, one of the largest flour millers in Southeast Asia, our joint venture partner is Salim is Group. Uh, we have 10 flour mills and a, uh, and a malting facility up in, uh, in Vietnam as well. It's a very, very impressive business and, and then the portfolio included a number of other smaller businesses, smaller investments. And also uh, CBH at that time had aspirations to expand the investment portfolio and hence the reason why I, I took the opportunity. If we just go
1: back a step, though, when you looked at CBH and when you look at it now, it's an iconic organisation. I mean, you're entrenched clearly in it now, but it's an iconic organisation that has been around since 1933. What I found really, I mean, coming from a farming background, it just resonated so much when I looked at it and, and just found that it was, it was established during the Great Depression. To, to achieve a cheap and efficient bulk handling system that would reduce the growers' costs and strengthen the struggling wheat industry. Now, that line is just so powerful as to why it started. Just give us a bit of an insight into the heritage and, and,
2: and what it means from that perspective for the grower. Yeah, it is an iconic organisation of Western Australia. I think, you know, one of the... Really interesting things is is the reason for existing today is no different to the reason why CBH was created back in 1933. And remembering at that point in time, the cost of a bag our grain was getting uh, exported was worth more than the grain inside it. So um, you know maybe just a little bit of detail around what CBH is. It's a cooperative. Um, it's owned by members. We have around about 3,700 members today. CBH has just just pause there. Yeah. Ben,
1: when you say members, these are grain growers. These are grain growers. these are farmers, these are businesses that are you know the heart and soul of the the grain the, industry within Western Australia.
2: Yeah, precisely. you know all unique businesses in their own right. And you know given the change in the demographics over the last 90 uh, odd years, we now have the 3,700, as I mentioned, uh, just over a decade, there were nearly 10,000 growers. So we've seen a lot of consolidation over that time. These growers are serious businesses, highly innovative, uh, highly capable businessmen and, and women uh, throughout the, uh, the grow, grain-growing areas of Western Australia, which stretch from sort of Banu in the, in the north all the way down to Beaumont, which is uh, east of Esperance in the south.
1: And with that in mind, the cooperative, what is the role of CBH in terms of what they're providing for their members?
2: CBH, the core part of our business, does three key things. So the first one is around providing uh, low-cost inputs. So we provide fertiliser to the grain growers of Western Australia now. Last year was our largest season, we provided nearly 200,000 tonnes of phosphates and and nitrogen, and we're looking to grow that business as well. I guess the true heart of CBH, where CBH started, was within the storage and handling part of the business. So we have 100 sites which form part of our, our network. We've got four ports, one's in uh, Geraldton, Quinana here in Perth, Albany, and also Esperance. And those uh, sites have the capacity to take you know, up to 20 million tonnes as we've seen this year. We've opened a few more of the, the older sites this year as well to handle the task. And then we've got a marketing and trading business um, which buys about half of the grain in Western Australia and then exports that to some 40 countries. CBH Marketing and Trading is the largest exporter of grain out of Australia by quite a margin and came out of the, uh, the grain pool days and has continued to expand. So you know, this year it'll, it'll trade in somewhere between 8 and 10 million tonnes of grain.
1: Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. If we just go back in terms of, that's a good overview of the CBH business. We go back in your role, you've started out in that commercial and business development role, which as you've highlighted, it's looking at business acquisition, business commencement. You started the fertilizer side of the business.
2: Yeah. So CBH at that point in time had, had a strategy of of looking at inputs and how we can provide competitiveness and also transparency into the fertiliser market. We looked at a number of different businesses from an acquisition perspective. We looked at joint ventures. And ultimately, we felt that we could create the, the most amount of value by establishing our own fertiliser business. And that business has grown year on year such that we, uh, we will shortly commence the construction of a fertiliser plant down in Quinana. Uh, in That'll be able to receive bulk products, so it comes in April, and, uh, and also we'll be storing uh, liquid fertiliser as well, which is really valuable to the grain growers of Western Australia. What this does is uses our buying capacity, and then allows us to provide that pricing transparency uh, to the growers of Western Australia, such that so they can get those inputs on a, on a, on a cost-competitive basis as possible. Um, obviously... Fert prices are, are, are up significantly this year with other commodities as well.
1: The other business that you acquired through that period was Blue, Blue Lake.
2: Yeah, so Blue Lake Milling is uh, a manufacturer of rolled oak products and Blue Lake rolls for all of the major supermarkets and does their home branded products. So we've got a facility over in South Australia and Victoria, which is what we acquired back in 2015. Uh, and then we've expanded that business here in Forestfield by, um, by building a, a rolled oat plant at our Metro Grain Centre. And the majority of those rolled oats go into, uh, into Southeast Asia, into a sort of really growing market around oat-based products. And so it's a really healthy option for, uh, for people and certainly seeing a lot of growth in that area. I think when you put those two together in terms of my journey, within the sort of first 12 months we'd uh, established a FERT business and then acquired Blue Lake Milling, I think that really set me up for success.
1: There was another pretty important role that you played within the CBH framework through that time in terms of the defence. Do you want to go through that in a little bit of
2: detail? Yeah, so pretty much as soon as we'd, we'd finished the acquisition of Blue Lake, CBH was the subject of, uh, I guess, what you call a hostile takeover from uh, the Australian Grains Champions. And so I think it was a really valuable piece of my journey within CBH in terms of defending the co-op. The proposal was really to take, that, take CBH, I guess, private or, or um, to buy it away from the, the grain growers, the members of uh, CBH. And so we spent a long time defending the cooperative and uh, it was a really valuable opportunity one for me but I think also for, for members to really understand the value that uh, CBH brings to the grain growers of Western Australia and I think there's no doubt in my mind that CBH as a cooperative creates the most amount of value for, uh, for growers.
1: Really interesting so you went on and became general manager for planning strategy and development which actually coincided with the appointment of the former BHP Billiton Iron Ore boss, Jimmy Wilson. So you ended up doing four years under Jimmy, in which you progressed quite quickly into General Manager of Operations and then Chief Operations Officer. And then at the age of 41, so which is, was about two years after you were appointed Chief Operations Officer, you were appointed CEO when Jimmy decided to step down. It's quite a, quite a fast rise and I suppose it now puts you in a position where you're, as CEO, responsible for some 1,100 permanent employees and around 1,800 casual employees. Not to mention the infrastructure and the role you play with the growers. It's, it's quite a, a challenging task but I'm sure it's one that you really are just so excited to get your teeth into.
2: Yeah, so I think incredibly excited, but I th- it is a privilege to be able to uh, lead an iconic organisation like CBH. I think if we, you know, you sort of step through that really quickly, Banners, but um, I think the sort of seven or eight years that I've been at CBH, you know, I've demonstrated capability and then taken on more responsibility. So every year I think I, I grew exposure to different parts of the business and I think that's really held me in good stead. So that AGC process, I really learned a lot about the value of the cooperative and then um, I took uh, accountability for the commercial aspects of the organisation and that meant I looked at lots of different parts of the business in a lot of detail. The, uh, The planning aspects is really around the network and understanding the network in detail How the integrated nature of the supply chain works to get grain both in and out, and so you know, I learned a lot about obviously the network at that point in time.
1: The the role in planning really did just when you look at the current record harvest, that planning to expand and enhance the CBH network was happening back in seventeen. Is that right? And and that was a was a purposeful. I would say, a purposeful decision to start making sure you were able to handle more grain?
2: Yeah, so we had a couple of different things going on. We had obviously um, ageing network. We are still consolidating the sites. So you know we at one stage had well over 300 sites. If you go back sort of 10 years, we were sort of using around 170. Even with the record harvest just gone, we've used and just over around about 130 sites. So we're still consolidating down to our 100 number. But at the same time of consolidating the network, we've obviously also got this massively increasing task. And what I mean by that is we've gone from, a, from an average of sub 10 million, sort of seven years ago, to something which is in the order of, of 14.5 million as we sit here today before we take into consideration this record crop. So, you know, we've got a number of different uh, facets going on there. It was really critical that. We invest in the network and grow the scale of it to deal with the growing task. And I think that's been really well understood. It's then about how we execute upon that. So creating more uh, storage to be able to receive it, but then also being able to get the crop out is a really important aspect as well.
1: When you look back at that, what's the importance of the strategy within CBH when you talk about it on an annual basis? What are your goals? Have you got a rolling goal? You've got a five-year plan?
2: So we have a, a rolling five-year plan and that's always taken into consideration the, the previous year's performance. I think as I look forward, what I'm sort of starting to structure the team around is, is looking further out, looking beyond, through the cycle. So you do have fluctuations in agriculture. It's just the nature of the beast we will have droughts, we'll have below average years and we'll have big years as we've got here today. So ultimately I want to look out to 2033 when the co-op turns 100 and, uh, and set ourselves with it, with a target longer term and, and align everyone on that. I think what we've done really well through that planning phase was is receiving the task and what we've seen over the last few years, particularly with COVID, is Supply chain shocks can have, make a big impact on, yes. uh, on your ability to move product. And uh, we've been no orphan in that, in that space as well. So our efforts, whilst we'll conti- continue to invest in, in expanding the network to receive the crop, we'll typically we we'll focus very much on getting the grain from, uh, from those upcountry sites through our ports and onto vessels.
1: Which then brings us to the, the global agricultural competitive landscape. Once you've you've been able to take the crop, you've delivered it to port, hit the buyers. How how's the landscape looking? What are you
2: seeing? It changes on a year to year basis, but let's just you know sit with macroeconomic themes. What we've seen is the Black Sea uh, increased production massively over the last sort of ten years. They were a net importer. Now they're a, a massive exporter of uh, of wheat and barley out of that part of the world, given their uh, rich soils and and good rainfall, typically they can produce much higher yields and therefore they can produce it on a lower cost per tonne basis or lower cost per hectare basis. Their crop comes on on stream in around about the middle of the year and typically what we find is in the front half of the year we we have a much uh, stronger competitiveness into Southeast Asia so that's when we try and target I think uh, the Northern Hemisphere this year has also seen pretty tough growing conditions and that's what's really driven strong pricing this year. I think we've also uh, got some challenges from a, from a Chinese perspective as well. We have the anti-dumping case on on barley. If you go back two years ago where they've basically banned our barley industry going into uh, into that market and and I think those geopolitical aspects are, are quite Prevalent as we uh, as we sit here today,
1: the current crop. I mean, the headlines are across. You know, most articles are quite uh, quite phenomenal when you think about what has actually been achieved this year. I mean, can you just give us some insights?
2: CBH has had a record year. Yes, certainly has. And you know, we can't take a record unless the growers uh, grow it. So we have uh, some of the best grain growers in the world. Typically, are farming in in poorer soils and lower rainfall areas than anywhere else in the world. So to to create a crop of in excess of 21 million tonnes is just phenomenal. But to give give your listeners a a bit of insight into how big that is. So our average task is 14.2 million tonnes. That's a five-year average. Yes. Two years ago, we received 9.7. Last year, we received just over 15, and this year, well over 21. The previous record is 16.6 million. We're getting close to 5 million tonnes over the, uh, the record that we've, uh, that we've received previously. So, and that's come in really well from, from growers. I think the frontline teams have done a sensational job. And I think there's been a lot of patience on the, on the grower side as well, particularly an environment where, um, where labour has been really difficult to get hold of, yes. particularly skilled labour given the closed borders. So, yeah, it's been a, a monumental effort. Canola is one that's, that are, many of your listeners will be familiar with. You know, normally we receive sort of about 1. 1.7, 1. 1.8 million tonnes of canola. This year it's well over 3 million tonnes and generally yeah. that's priced at around about 450 or $500 and, and at the moment it's trading in excess of 800
1: Which all goes well for the grower.
2: Yeah, I think it's a fantastic, Just fantastic. Yeah, fantastic for the grower. Fantastic for the local communities because that money gets reinvested into those local communities, and the ag sector typically also invests into, into regional centres like Perth as well. So, it's a, it's a great outcome for the economy of Western Australia at this current point in time. But also, let's remember that input prices have gone up dramatically. So, you know, a tonne of urea, which is a nitrogen. For, for growers, you know, if you go back uh, last year or so, it might have been $500 a tonne. At the moment, it might be 1500 You know, chemicals have gone up threefold as well. So input prices have also followed uh, the other commodity um, prices as well. So, you know, th- there's some some difficult choices for growers to uh, to make as they go into the next growing season.
1: Well, I think that begs for two questions. The first is... How has the infrastructure with such a record crop, the CBH infrastructure, been able to handle that additional through flow? Because you would have your set targets. I mean, we're talking about 16 versus 21. So yeah, that's the first question. The second question I would then go on is when you look at your forecast for the next growing season, with those challenges of inputs and the prices, how do you see your forecasting at the moment?
2: Yeah, so let, let's go with your first question. So we talked about the plan. So we'd been working towards a, a twenty million ton average, but we were uh, forecasting that to occur f- um, far further into the future. So it certainly occurred far quicker. But I think, given the really good early start and, and sort of summer thunderstorms that we received last year, if you all remember, yes, around Christmas and soon after, and as well as Cyclone Soroga. It was pretty clear that we were going to have a gr- good growing season with lots of good rainfall. Obviously, there was still risk around frost and a dry finish and things like that. But given uh, supply chain constraints, we put a lot of planning into what a big crop would look like very early on, on the basis that if we didn't plan early and didn't get some of that equipment or infrastructure that we were required in from overseas soon, we were concerned about constraints created by COVID. And so, We made the decision in about May that we were going to have a big crop and we went off and and basically executed on that plan. We broke it down into a number of tranches. You know, we built two and a half million tonnes of what we call emergency or temporary storage ahead of harvest. Put that in context, the previous largest program we'd done is about a million tonnes. And when you combine that two and a half with the permanent storage, so the new builds that we did, we nearly built three million tonnes of storage. So you're looking at nearly 15% of the network was constructed in one year uh, in a network that had been alive for you know, nearly 90. So yes. a, a fantastic effort by all of our teams and also all of our contractors.
1: With the growers of the crop, is there a benefit for having an earlier harvest than a later harvest? When you talk about your global competitive landscape, in terms of the pricing they receive, is there a price fluctuation that's going to occur based on earlier than later? Or in this particular instance, if your capacities are at where they're at now, how does the grain that's still yet to come get treated from a price perspective?
2: Yeah, so I don't think it's as much to do with when the, the harvest is or when the crop's taken off as to when the grain is exported. So there's clearly value, as I alluded to before, there's value in getting the crop out in the front half of the year for growers. Yes because that's when we typically have the southeast or our core market to, our, to ourselves and before the, um, the black Sea crop comes off. So typically what we'll find is you know, around 60 to 70% of the crop will go out in the front half of the calendar year and that's because that's when our crop is the most valuable. So you get this, this funny outcome where you've, you've got to build capacity to the front half of the year and that means you've got idle capacity in the back half. You know, Where we want that spring capacity is on rail this is why we work with uh, the likes of Verizon, who, who's just taken our, our contract over for, uh, for rail provision, and also ARC, who owns the below uh, rail assets, and also state government in terms of investing in, in some of this really critical infrastructure to get the growing task out. As we move forward, I see grain growers of Western Australia continuing to improve, and they've, they've demonstrated that over a, a long period of time, but with improved seed uh, technology Improve farming equipment, improve farming practices. I think the task continues to increase and what we're seeing now is more likely to be the norm, not the exception if we look longer term.
1: Right. Ben, just conscious of your time, but if we just come back to that point, how does the forecast look for the next growing season when you're understanding that the input costs are, are escalating?
2: Yeah, I think uh, each of the growers will make their own decisions around what their net farm gate return looks like it's probably likely to see a fewer hectares go in the ground as a result but I think at this stage probably a little too early to, to predict on some of that the way we do it we ask growers for their estimates and essentially what that is is each individual farmer's cropping plant so how many hectares did you put in and of what commodity did you put in the ground that we typically ask that after they've uh, started it or completed their um, seeding programs. And then we can start to calibrate that based on rainfall to understand what the yield looks like. And we basically do the mass out to, uh, to understand the size of the task. In a normal year, you'll find that different parts of the state are performing better than others. Yes. This year, we, uh, the one just gone, the entire state performed exceptionally well.
1: Just so good. I just want to quickly go back, sort of just get one quick insight into the process around you being selected as CEO, you were acting for some five, six months yep. and you had to go through that phase. I understand that the search for a new CEO was conducted locally, nationally and internationally. Talk to us a little bit about the due diligence process that the CBH board went through in terms of your appointment.
2: Yeah, I think it was multifaceted. So. You know, first I think sitting in the acting role, they get to uh, see how you're going to operate and get a good insight into who you are and how you behave and what your capabilities like. I think the other piece they did was psychometric testing that you normally expect with uh, most most roles of of this um, magnitude. They did a lot of 360 work as well, so interviewed people that I'd worked with, uh, worked for, or who'd worked for me to understand, I guess, my, my skill set. And then they undertook a, a formal interview process as well. And like you say, they uh, did that across a range of internal applicants um, and they also looked at external applicants uh, both here in Australia and also internationally. So. I think, obviously, it's a, an interesting process to go through, particularly as you're going through a record harvest and preparing one for one. Sure is. But, um, you know, you, you learn a lot through that process about yourself, about uh, the business, and, and also, you know, forming that relationship with, uh, with the board and, and chair is really important as well. So, you know, I think that acting uh, role has stood me in really good stead to... Um, you know, to essentially uh, move forward in a in a really methodical way. So, really, where I'm at now is uh, is working with the board to refresh our strategy and make sure that we're consistent and leveraging some of those um, those skills and capabilities that I've learned along the journey, whether that be from a farming upbringing or uh, from the sporting experiences, from a PwC experience, Gresham, and the last sort of nearly decade within uh, within CBH as well. If you were to say you modelled yourself on any
1: particular leader, would that be fair to say? Do you have anyone that stands out in your mind as someone you, you really have grown to admire?
2: It's, a, it's an interesting question because I get that a bit. And, I, and I've thought about this because you gave me a bit of a heads up. But I don't think there's any one individual. But if I was to go back and say someone, it's clearly probably my, my father who instilled a lot of discipline, work ethic, integrity into all of us or into all four of us boys. Then there's other people along the journey which I've always learnt uh, something from. So whether that's someone I was working for in an audit capacity, M&A, uh, looking at different CEOs that, that I've uh, worked with over the journey as well. I think you pick up, you know, yes, that's a good thing. I want to put that in my, in my kit bag. That's not something that I want to take, but it's interesting to see how that uh, impacts on other people as well. So I think I've, uh, I would like to think I've taken different things from different people through my journey and, and, and try to incorporate the good pieces into, uh, into my leadership style.
1: Well, look, I mean, it's been a fascinating chat, it really has been a great insight into your world and also the world of CBH, but also a round of applause to the, to the agricultural sector and and the crops that have come off this year. I know that not every region has had it all perfect, but it's just been an outstanding year and one that WA is proud of. You know, to be able to produce what's happened is just a a fantastic result. Uh, You must feel incredibly proud.
2: I am incredibly proud to be a part of the ag industry and to achieve uh, 20 million tonnes. And remember, there's more than that out there. But um, it's certainly been an aspiration for the ag sector for a long time, and to be part of and to be leading CBH at, at this particular point in time is a really uh, is a massive honour. I would like to say, and you know, just incredibly proud of of our frontline teams, our central teams for all the support that they've provided, and then um, just with the growers, I think it's just a, a phenomenal effort to create a crop of this size when you've had uh, a lot of people in the north of the state putting in crops without even roofs over their head as a result of cyclone serosia. Yes. You've got people battling through without having uh, skilled labour or or enough labour full stop. So it's just an incredible effort and something that I'm incredibly proud to be involved in.
1: Benny, look, having known you for a long time and and having played a fair bit of footy with you, but also knowing you as the person you are and the character you have, the observations I've made, I did this previously, but I just, you know, you make some notes as you go through. It seems like what drives you is the growers. You've got a real passion for the people and the industry and you don't want to let them down in essence. You've been given a role or you've earned a role and you're really doing everything you can to make sure it's a success. You're a team player, always have been, but I know that what you're doing is embracing the people around you, which you can hear by you. your comments around the front line and being able to achieve such a massive result within the organisation is, is, is not a one-person job, it is certainly a team. Committed, and I would say that you're up for the challenges as they present, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot, but you'll attack them with vigour.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, ag, it always throws up different challenges every year. And my old man used to say, if you're looking to the heavens for an answer, I think you're probably in the wrong game. So, <laughs> you know, um, you, you've got to take it as it comes, you've got to roll with the punches, so as to speak. And then it comes down to having a, a really solid team and great people. And at CBH, that's what I'm lucky enough to have. We've got a great team, we've got fantastic people. And and I really look forward to investing in them as, uh, as we move forward to ensure that we set them up for success for, for receiving this task on, a, on an annual basis and, and getting this crop out to port every year.
1: Look, mate, thanks very much again for your time. We do appreciate it. I know you're busy, but thanks again and, and well done.
2: Thanks, Banners. Much appreciated.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartley's. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at eurosheartleys.com or visit our website at www.eurosheartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Heartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.